You can keep your Bible open just to Romans chapter 8. Really quickly, just an announcement. If you uh, have a child in the nursery or have, will have children in the nursery or just want to see the new nursery wing that is completed, there will be an open house just right after the service. If you just walk over there, just ask someone. If you don't know, they'll get you there. Um, and then you can just take a walk around. Lisa Newsom, our kids director, will show you that. So um, it's been a long process, but it looks really good. So I encourage you to go over there and check it out uh, this afternoon. So, um, yeah, as you're turning in your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 will be in 18, verse, or 18 through 30. Um, so a couple years ago, I signed up for a half marathon, and I talked Allie into it. I talked Greg, who usually sitting right around here, Greg, and uh, my sister Taylor. I talked all them into to running this race with me. Um, and if you've, if you've never run a race like that, you know, a 5K or a half marathon or a marathon, uh, just to let you know what it's like, you get there really early, and you, you go to the, to the starting line, get there you know, 6.30, 7 a.m., everyone's stretching, everyone's getting ready. And I think the way to describe it would be that there's just this nervous energy, this nervous energy all around you. If you're at the Knoxville Marathon, it's, it's, it's all throughout the convention center, this nervous energy. And, and I would even describe it, if I was describing it in one word, it's hope, right? There's just this hopefulness. I mean, this is a group of people who have spent hours and hours and hours training for this thing. They're, they're, this is crazy. They're, they're paying to do this, which is just ridiculous, right? You're paying to have the right to run 26.2 miles or 13.1 miles or 3.2 miles. It's kind of crazy. But you're, you're paying for this, and there's just this, this hopefulness because everything has built up to this point. And every, you know... There's no reason that anyone would ever do this if they didn't have some kind of hope. There's some kind of hope that's driving them. There's something that's having them do this, right? Maybe it's to get in shape. Maybe it's to get that PR if they're you know, normally a runner. Maybe it's uh, to post it on Instagram just to have everyone celebrate them. Whatever it is, there's something that's driving them. And I was no different. There was something that was driving me. When I first started training, it was to get rid of my dad bod. Um, by then, I realized that hadn't happened. I was running the race and still looked the same. But, you know, that's okay. I had other goals. I had other goals to, to uh, first of all, I was running with Greg. I wanted to beat Greg. That's number one. Um, I wanted to just have the feeling of accomplishment. I wanted the food at the end. There's usually pizza, right? Like, so that was, you know, that was good. I wanted the sermon illustrations. I mean, that's why I run. Like, 90% of the reason I run is just because it gives you a lot of sermon illustrations. So I began this race with a lot of hope. But as I began to run, that hope began to dwindle. And I can tell you exactly when it began to dwindle. Um, it's about mile three. I looked over at Greg. Greg looked awesome. Okay. Uh, I saw Andrew Lewis. He was running. Andrew looked awesome. I looked around me. Everyone else looked awesome. I was dying. Okay. And this is a 13.1-mile race. I'm at mile three, and I am dying. Then I get to mile four. The way the, the race goes, you're at that point going into Sequoia Hills. And at that point, the rain came, and it never stopped. Not once. Never stopped. My feet just were, were at the end were just disgusting. My shoes filled with water. So as you're stepping, you just get that squishy feeling every time for 13.1 miles. It was horrible. 
And my hope just dwindled and dwindled and dwindled until at mile 10 when it was finally completely gone. I, I, I remember this moment. Like, I, I died inside. Like, this is literally just when I just wanted to die. I'm running. I'm at mile 10, and I hear a lady yell out an encouraging word. Only a 5K left. And here's what I thought. People train for 5Ks. You know, like, like that's a long ways. That's 3.2 miles. I was like, I'm going to die. At that point, I looked at Greg. I said, go. He took off. I'm watching him run away from me, and I'm just alone. And you can picture me. You know, have you ever been to the mall really early before everything opens, and there's those people who are like run walking? That's me for 3.1 miles. And I just wanted to quit. I really did. I, I almost did quit. I, I actually considered it, just stepping to the side and saying, it's not my day. I'm not feeling it. My legs felt like there were knives going in on my feet just hurt with every step. But I'll tell you what kept me going. Allie was also running in the race. Okay? There's a detail I didn't share earlier. Allie was pregnant and running in this race. And I knew that she was not that far behind me. <laughs> okay? So this is, what the, this is the narrative that is going on in my head. What are people going to say if you lose to your pregnant wife? <laughs> do not lose to your pregnant wife. I mean, I always want to win, but do not lose to your pregnant wife. Do not lose to someone who is carrying another human being. And so the last three miles is just me looking back like this, just trying to get to the finish line. Yeah. Here's why I tell you that. Not just to embarrass myself. Here's why I tell you that. There's two different ways to run a race. And you can tell it on people's face the way they're running their race. You can run it with a hope of what's to come. You can run it. It still hurts. Okay, no one's out there not hurting. But you can run the race thinking about the finish line. You can run the race thinking about what is to come, being motivated by the hope that you have. Or you can run the race being motivated by fear of what's behind you. You can run the race being motivated by losing to your pregnant wife <laughs> or what people are going to say or whatever it is that you fear. And I think that's a pretty good illustration for what Paul is talking about right here. Because if you look around our world right now, people are all running, but they're not running with much hope, are they? We're all, <laughs> we're all running, but I feel like there's this collective groan that it doesn't really feel like we're going anywhere. Because it doesn't feel like there's a lot of reason to have hope. I mean, I just made a list here. I could add a hundred things, but here's just the list I wrote down really quick. Inflation, the current state of our politics, war in Europe, global pandemics, debt, injustice, earthquakes, name your dozens of things. Reasons that it feels like we shouldn't have hope. Woody Allen, uh, the comedian, summarized life this way. He said, life is hard, and then you die. That was his summary for everything. Life is hard, and then you die. That feels like a pretty good summary of our cultural moment, doesn't it? Life is hard, then you die. There's nothing to hope for. So here's my question, right? Here's my question. What does Christianity have to say to this? What does the Bible have to say to this? Because even in the church, there are people who I think feel hopeless a lot of the times. What does God say to us this morning through the Apostle Paul? And I think he makes it clear. I think we can summarize, you saw it. I think we can summarize this passage in one word. It's hope right? That, that's Paul's point. You have 
hope. Specifically in this passage, he says our hope is that everything is going to be made right. Everyone living in this world experiences the consequences of sin every single day. But Paul says that one day everything sad will become untrue. We have hope, okay? We have hope. And let me clarify something. We read that, and you saw that over and over again. Hope, 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 hope. We actually do ourselves a disservice because that's the right way to trans- translate the word that, that Paul uses, hope. But the way that we use hope is so weak compared to the way that Paul is using it. To actually translate this word that Paul is using, it's actually better to translate it as a profound certainty. That's what this is. He says, we have a profound certainty. Because we say, you know, okay, I hope that I win the lottery, right? And we cross our fingers and maybe say a little prayer or whatever, and we hope that we win. But we know deep down that we're never going to. This isn't that kind of hope. This is a profound certainty. And if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, every morning when you wake up, you wake up with that profound certainty. You wake up, and if you think about it, you are invincible, Okay, we're going to talk about that more in depth next week. You are invincible. What can, what can get to you? What can do anything to you? Because you're certain. You, it's just, it's so certain, this hope that you have. But let's be honest. Do we often live that way? I don't, right? If I did, I would never be anxious if I lived that way. We know here that we have this profound certainty, but it often doesn't make it here. We don't actually live like this is true. And I think the reason for that is because I talk about all these things, inflation, politics, war in Europe, global pandemics. The thing is, Christians aren't immune to that stuff, right? Like, I mean, Christians aren't immune. I've heard it this way. You know, Jesus says, you know, build your life on my words. And when the rain comes, the house will not be swept away. In that illustration, he, he puts against each other the person who builds their life on his words and the person who doesn't. But what's the same between them is, even the person who follows Jesus, the rain still comes, doesn't it? The storm still comes. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean you get to escape the storm. So often, we feel like, okay, there's this profound certainty. And then we look at the circumstances of our life and we say, where is it? <laughs> right? Is this true, God? How can this be true when I'm living in these kind of circumstances? The difference is not that we don't, as Christians, experience suffering. Here's the difference. Look at verse 18. Here's what Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Let me me read that again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul makes it clear. You will suffer. Life will feel like you're running a half marathon and you have knives in your knees and your feet. It'll feel like that sometimes. It's not always going to be good. But one of the greatest things that God gives us in order to persevere through suffering is the truth of what's to come. The truth of the shore that we're swimming to. That no matter how much we get beat up. I mean, look, life sometimes, doesn't it? Life feels like someone just picked you up, put you on their shoulder, and then just did one of those WWE body slams on you. And you're like, what in the world just happened? It feels like, you know, if you've ever 
gone white, you know, whitewater rafting or whatever, and it's just beating you up, and you're just holding on, and you're like, I just don't even know if I'm going to make it through this thing. It feels like that sometimes. But Paul says the difference is, it's still going to feel like that if you're a Christian, but the difference is the hope you have. So for some of you all, you've come in here, and I'll talk more about this in a second, but you came in here suffering this morning. You have, you are, you are there right now. You just got body slammed. If that's you, I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope it will be. But if you're not, if you're like, life's pretty good right now, here's what I'd encourage you. I would encourage you to take that verse right there, verse 18, and drive that deep down into your soul. Because suffering is coming. You live in a sinful world. It is coming. So drive that deep down into your soul so when suffering comes, you will not be moved. Paul gives us two illustrations to explain this, and I think these are really helpful. Look at verse 22. The first illustration he uses is the illustration of childbirth, okay? Now, I'm not the person to be talking about this, okay? Uh, But from what I've seen, childbirth is painful, okay? Half of you all can back me up on this probably, right? Childbirth is painful. Um, And here's the thing. It's painful but the thing about childbirth, and the reason it's used over and over again in the Bible, Jesus uses the same exact analogy. The reason it's used is because childbirth is the ultimate example of pain, extraordinary pain, but pain that is superseded by extraordinary hope and joy. That's childbirth. It's, it's a painful experience, but it's taken over by the fact that there's this hope of one day holding your little baby. And that... It's, this, it's this, this crazy mixture of intense pain and extraordinary joy. I mean, if I asked any mom in here and I said, what are the most joyful days of your life? On that list, you would probably say the birth of my kids, right? That would be somewhere on the list. But if I said, what are the most painful days of your life? <laughs> you would probably say the birth of my kids, right? It's this weird intertwining, but it's suffering with hope. And Paul says that's what we, we, we are suffering as Christians. We are suffering, but we are suffering with hope. Let me make more, one more point about this illustration that I really love. No one goes to a mother in the hospital and says to her, suck it up. Okay. Here, you know what? Okay. You're in pain right now. Let me tell you, your pain is showing that you don't really love your son or daughter. Your pain is showing that you don't really love your baby because if you were really joyful about what's to come, you would not be in pain right now. Go try that. See how that goes, okay? It's not going to go well. No one does that. And I've loved it. I think that's why this, this, this illustration is really helpful. It's because the Bible does not minimize your suffering. A lot of Christians go there. They, hear, they read this passage, and they see someone suffering, and basically their response is, suck it up, lift your chin up, it's all going to be okay. But that's not it, okay? Your suffering, the Bible does not minimize that at all. If you are suffering right now, the Bible invites you to grieve that and lament that. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. Okay? I mean, I just, like, like I say this, this isn't my, in my notes, but I, I'm, I feel strongly about this because the other day I was having a meeting with a really good friend of mine, and his dad is dying like right now, in the process, and his, he, is, he is way too young for his dad to be dying. And as I'm talking to him about this, these were the things that he kept saying to me. It's okay. I know where he's going. It's okay. I don't, 
I'm not, I'm really, I'm doing fine. I'm okay. There's no need to, to mourn. There's no need to be sad. It's all okay. And there's truth in that. He does know where his dad's going. He does have hope, absolutely, right? But also, the Bible doesn't minimize the fact that this is not the way it's supposed to be, right? This is not the way. We, we mourn this. We grieve this. We, this should anger us that death is in the picture. You see what I'm saying? So this is not a passage to minimize your, your pain. It's not a passage that says, suck it up. But the hope is there. There are far better things ahead than any we leave behind. That's the first illustration Paul uses. Then he uses another one, verse 23. This one isn't as familiar, unless you're a farmer. But he says that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And so if you're not a farmer, if you don't know what the first fruits are, it's pretty intuitive. It's the first fruits of the harvest. Okay? So if you have a, a, an apple tree and you go out and, and, and pick that first apple that comes out before the harvest... You come back and you bring it in and you celebrate it because this is the first fruits. It's the promise that one day you will have a harvest. So the Holy Spirit living in us is the first fruits of what's to come. Okay? So the Bible says, what theologians, how they describe it is, we live in the already but not yet. The already but not yet. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are, you know, Sin and Satan and death have been defeated on the cross through Jesus' death and resurrection. And if we are living in him, we are citizens of, of heaven, of the life to come. But we still live in a sinful world. You see that? We have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit that everything will be made right, but it hasn't been made right yet. And so just like that first fruits, you bring back that apple... And it's a promise that you're going to have a harvest, but it's also a frustration because the harvest isn't there yet. And you have to have that harvest to feed your family, to sell it off, to be able to pay your debts. And that's where we're living right now. We have this, this great promise that everything's going to be made okay. But we're reminded every single day that the promise has not come to fruition yet. But here's the thing. I'm saying this over and over again. We don't have to run scared. We can run with hope. And if you want to see what this looks like, just look at the guy writing the letter, the Apostle Paul. Look at this verse. He says this, Philippians 3.14. He says, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on towards the goal. And Paul, if you know anything about his biography, dude had a hard life, didn't he? He had a hard life. It was not easy. And, he, and as I said, the Bible doesn't minimize your pain. Paul doesn't minimize his pain. He, he, he's very clear that he went through a lot, whether it was beatings or being shipwrecked or you know, being looked down upon and losing his friends or being bitten by a snake. Like, you name it, Paul went through it. He is a man who is acquainted with pain. But here's the other amazing thing about Paul. When you look at his life, there's an unbelievable freedom about him, isn't there? He, he is totally... Free, and he is living out this hope that he talks about. I mean, if you were an enemy of Paul, that would be the most frustrating person to have as an enemy, wouldn't it? What do you do to this guy? Like, think about it. Like, what do you do to Paul to get at him? If you leave him alone, he's going to travel around all the Roman world. He's going to plant churches. He's going to preach the gospel. If you imprison him, you know what he's going to do? He's going to convert the guards. And he's going to convert all the prisoners. And then he's going to spend that time writing letters that's going to be read for the rest of eternity 
right? If you try to kill him, what's he going to say? To die is gain, okay? To die is gain. This is better. My hope will then become sight. I get to go see Jesus and be with him. And then if you say, well, we're not going to kill him, let's beat him. It would hurt him. He's human. He's going to feel it. But here's what he'd say. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So as you're beating him, he's rejoicing, right? You see that? I mean, he's suffering, but he's suffering with hope. He's suffering with freedom. He's invincible. Like he literally, he is invincible, okay? There is nothing you can do to get at him. If you're a Christian, that can be true of you too. It is true of you too. I'll say, it is true of you too, whether you believe it or not. If you are in Christ, this is what's true of you. What can people do to you? Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. So we have hope. But not only do we have hope, we don't have to walk through this life alone. We also have help. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's this word that shows up. So if you, if you talk about two words in this passage, it's the word hope and then the word groan, right? This word groan pops up. I mean, the creation is groaning. We're groaning. Then the Spirit is interceding with his own groans. Everyone groans. When I saw this word groan, there's, there's one story that popped into my, my mind that happened pretty recently. Um, our extended family was up at a cabin in Sevierville uh, for, for just a, a family gathering. And me and Dan drove back Saturday night so we could be here for worship on Sunday morning. So Dan drives me back. We get back into Knoxville. He drops me off at my house about 10 p.m., I go in, I take all my bags, I take all my stuff, I lay them on the counter, and then I take out my keys out of my pocket, as I always do. I lay them on the counter, and I walk away. And then I realize I have the keys, but I don't have the car. (laughs) Allie has the car, and she has to get home tomorrow. And so I won't do it, but here was my response in realizing that I was heading back to Sevierville. I just fell down on my face in the middle of my living room, and I just groaned, right? I, there was nothing else I could do but just groan. And that's a, that's a dumb story because that's just an inconvenience, right? I mean, compared to what we go through, who cares, right? But groaning, groaning is our response when things don't go the way we planned, right? Groaning is our response to pain. Groaning is what we do when we're frustrated. Groaning is what we do when we're scared. Groaning is the sound of a fallen world. Life in a fallen world means groaning. But Paul reminds us that in our groaning, we are not alone. The Spirit, he says, helps us in our weakness. The Spirit is groaning just as we are and just as creation is. But the difference is we often groan because we're hopeless. The Spirit is never hopeless. The Spirit knows clearly what's going to happen. But he is groaning with us. The Spirit, just like, I mean, again, I always talk about it. My favorite story, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, right? Mary and Martha come to him, and Mary is weeping. And Jesus knows full well that in a few minutes, he's going to raise her brother, 
But what does he do? He weeps with her as she's weeping. He's not hopeless. He knows what's about to happen. But he weeps with her as she's weeping. The Spirit groans with us as we're groaning. So no matter what you're going through, as you, you let out these, these groans, right? Like as you, as you live this life of, of groaning, whatever that may be, the Spirit is right there groaning with you. The Spirit is right there, the great comforter there to comfort you. Isn't that a good truth, right? You may feel, I mean, there are times in life where it just feels like you are completely alone. No one understands what you're going through. How can they, right? You don't even fault them because how can they understand what you're going through? But you know what? Jesus does. The Spirit does. And even if it feels like it, they have not abandoned you in in the time of your need. They are groaning right along with you. So that's a comfort. It's also a lesson. It's also a lesson. Here's the thing. As Christians, you won't always be suffering, but you'll always know someone who is suffering, right? Like at at any time, if you're a part of Christian community, someone around you is going to be suffering. Here's an application for you. Take a cue from the Spirit here, okay? The best answer is typically not to come in with some profound theological statement about why this thing is happening, as I'm so often tempted to do, right? That's not it. Actually, back to the tomb, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. Martha tries to go there. If you go back and read this story, John 11, Martha goes to Jesus. Jesus, she goes, you would have, if you would have been here, he would be okay. And he says, She'll, he'll rise again, talking about what's about to happen in a few minutes. And Martha says, I know, one day, it's all going to be made right. And Jesus corrects her, right? Jesus corrects her. And what he ends up doing is just being there comforting, weeping with those who weep. I just encourage you, as you interact with people who are suffering, as you will, don't make your first instinct to run to Romans 8.28 that we're about to talk about. Okay? I'm going to give you a deep dive theological explanation of that verse. Don't start there. Okay? Start with, what can I do to love you? What can I do to support you? Take putting your arm around their shoulder letting them know I'm here for you, right? (laughs) I want to pick you up and help you to the finish line if I have to. I will not abandon you. That's where we start. That's where we start. Weeping with them, supporting them, loving them, comforting them, just like the Holy Spirit does. So the Holy Spirit, he's our comforter, but he's also more than that. Paul tells us, this is is crazy. I love thinking about these passages, these verses. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is actually praying for us. You know that? The Holy Spirit is praying for us. I knew a guy who would come up to people, and when they were suffering, he would say, I'm praying for you. But even more than that, the Holy Spirit's praying for you, and Jesus is praying for you. Isn't that a crazy thought? They are interceding for us. They are praying for us, especially at our low points. Have you ever been at such a low point in your life that you know you should be praying, but you don't even know what to say? Like, like you're, you know, okay, I'm supposed to take this to God, but you're there, and you're on your knees, and you're praying, but you don't even know what to say. All that comes out is groans, right? Maybe you're, you're driving a, a good friend or a family member, a loved one to, a, to the emergency room, 
and you're just driving as fast as you can. There's nothing you can do. You're trying to pray, and all that comes out is just help. That's all help. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. God, I, I know I need your help, but I don't even know what to say. It's just this mixture of groaning and just whatever you can muster. Maybe you're in a really difficult circumstance, and it's been going on for a while, and you're like, I don't even know what to pray in this situation. Do I pray that you take it away? Do I pray that you just leave me in it and use me? Like, what do I pray, right? Maybe it's just in life there are times where we pray things that we, um, we don't know how to pray. Maybe we feel like we've prayed incorrectly. Okay, so story of this uh, just happened earlier. We were praying, uh, the band and all of us who lead this service, and we were praying before the service, just, just praying um, praying over you all, praying about, you know, this time together. And one of our band members who was praying, we, we knew, you know, with spring break and the weather and the time change, we knew we'd be a little bit light this morning. And so the prayer was, please just bless the people who come today. To which we all responded jokingly, what about the people who don't come, <laughs> right? And so then it, you know, created this thing. But here's the thing, even in those moments, you know what this is telling us? The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. There's, there's really no way to mess praying up, okay? There's no way, even if you're praying for the wrong things, the Holy Spirit's got you. That's what this is saying. The Holy Spirit's there. You can't mess it up. So there's such a freedom. Often we don't want to pray because we don't want to pray for the wrong things. We're afraid that we're, we're going to mess it up. Paul's saying, don't worry about that. That's what children do. You know how often Knox asks me, asks me for things that he does not need? It's about 90% of the things he asked me for, right? That's what children do. They go to their father with things, that have been asking for things that they don't really need. But God is so good. The Holy Spirit is so good that he will only give us the things that we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows, right? He's working all things out for our good. He's interceding for us even when we come to prayers that aren't the best, so that should free us up, right? The key here, just pray. <laughs> just go to God. Go to God and take to him whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you have. Cast it all at his feet. Moving on, that takes us to one of the most well-known of all the Bible verses. I'll stay here for a little while. Romans 8, 28. And as, as Neil mentioned, right, this is the life verse for many. This is the verse that ends up on coffee cups and stitched on pillows and hanging up on your grandma's wall, right? This is everywhere, right? It's on the keychains. It's on the t-shirts. We love Romans 8.28. There may be no verse that Christians love more than Romans 8.28. Maybe John 3.16, but it's probably close. And there's good reason for that, okay? Romans 8.28 is like a bomb shelter in a sinful world. The bombs are bursting all around you. Everything's constantly being shaken up. But Romans 8.28 is that shelter that just, it just gives you this feeling of stability no matter what is happening around you. But here's the interesting thing. We love to quote Romans 8.28. We love to put it on all of our stuff. Here's what I, you know, maybe it's no one in this room, but I don't think a lot of Christians actually understand Romans 8.28, if we're being honest. We love it, but I don't think we fully understand it. So look at it, verse 28, let me read it. It says this, And we know 
that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, you can see why we love it. It's, it's amazing news, right? God is working all things for your good. From the smallest, most insignificant thing that happens to you to the mountaintops of your life, God is working them for your good. Think back to your greatest heartache. Think back to your greatest disappointment. Think back to the thing that still causes you pain decades later. And the promise here is that God was working it for your good. And if you want proof, what's the worst thing that has ever happened? Acts 4 says it was Jesus being murdered on a Roman cross. And you know what it tells us? God was working that for our good, right? God took the worst, most satanic, demonic, evil thing to ever happen and worked it for the good of the world. So he is working all things for your good. And sometimes, maybe you have a story of this, sometimes you get to see that play out right in front of your eyes. You ever had that happen? You had a disappointment and then you could see, whether it was a week or a month or a year or a decade later, you could see how God was working out for your good. Think back to last summer. Remember our series, if you were here on Joseph, went through it for an entire summer. That's his story, right? Joseph is sold into slavery. He gets thrown in the prison for something that he didn't do. He's then forgotten in that prison. It's one bad thing after another that happens, and then we're told at the end, we find out God was working all together for his good and his people's good because that prisoner actually ends up in the palace. He becomes second in command to Pharaoh. He saves the world from a famine, and God, he knows God was working it for his good. He's talking to his brothers who sold him into slavery, and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Sometimes we have those Joseph-like moments. Sometimes we can look back over our life and see God's hand and how he was working. But let me burst your bubble a little bit, okay? Let me emphasize something. That is not the promise of Romans 8, 28, okay? That Joseph's story is not the promise of Romans 8, 28. The promise is not that you will be able to see how God was working a day later, or a year later, or a decade later, or five decades later. That's not the promise. The promise is that one day you will stand on the mountaintop of eternity and you will look back on your life, and then you will be able to see how God was working for your good. You see the difference there? We often take Romans 8.28 and whatever happens, we say, well, here's the silver lining. One day in this life, I will know why God did this. Maybe, but that's not, that's not the promise, okay? That's not the promise. Here's, here's, a, here's a, an example. Let's say you come to me after the service, and you, you need a job, okay? Looking for a job, and you had some, some uh, interviews this week, uh, and you felt really good about them, but then you just got the call this morning that they all moved on. So none of those worked out. If I look at you, you know, pray for you, and then I look at you before you go, and I say, hey, wait. Let me encourage you with something. Romans 8, 28. God is working all things for your good. You didn't get this job, but you know what that means? God has a better job for you. And then you walk off feeling great. Did I tell the truth? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe, right? 
But if you never have another job for the rest of your life, because no one will hire you, is Romans 8, 28 still true? Yes, okay? Because God is still working for your good. You see that? We may not be able to see it right now, but God is still working for your good. And that truth, okay, it doesn't feel like it right now. I said it's bursting your bubble. It really is not. That truth is so much more glorious than the way we typically read Romans 8, 28. Because our eternity is secure, right? All right, even if we can't see it in this life, our eternity is secure. He is working for our eternal good, not just good in the circumstances of our life. Here's his goal. So what is it? Okay, so what's it mean that he's working for our good? Here's what verse 29 tells us. God's goal for us is not good circumstances. His goal for us is that he is working us. He is forming us into the image of Jesus. That's what he's doing. Okay? Romans 8:28, the good means two things. Everything he is doing, if you are in Christ, is to make you look more like Jesus. And everything he do, he's doing is getting you to your eternal destination, right? Which is completely secure. That is the good, okay? He is working for your sanctification, and he's working for your glorification. That's the promise. Okay. Let me ask another question about this. Romans eight twenty eight. you see it here. Who's the promise for? Who's the promise for? That's the other thing we mess up. Everyone claims this promise, don't they? But there's actually a qualifier here. Who is this promise for? The promise is for those who love God. God is not working for the good of everyone. He's not working for the good of everyone. And that may sound controversial. (laughs) That may sound harsh. You may hear that and think, well, that's not fair. But think about what good means in Romans 8.28. The good is to look more like Jesus and to spend eternity glorifying him. There are a lot of people who don't want either one of those things, do they? <laughs> they don't. Because both of those things involve kneeling, bending the knee to King Jesus and submitting your life to him. So God is working for our eternal good. A lot of people would be absolutely miserable in heaven. Let's just say it that way. Because heaven... It's all about glorifying God. It's all about raising him up. It's all about doing what we were called to do, being his image bearers, glorifying him, reflecting his glory. A lot of people would hate that. So how can God work for their good? He can't, right? He can't because good is giving them himself. That is the ultimate good, and they don't want him. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So he is working for our good if you love him. If you love him, he is working for your good. But let me close with this. Okay, let me close with with this. If you are in Jesus, if you are submitted to him, if you have bent the knee to King Jesus and are a follower of him, then it truly is, as I talked about at the beginning, it truly is a profound certainty. Look at verse 30. I love this, and and, and I'm frustrated even looking at this verse because every word in here deserves a sermon, and so I can't really get into it the way I want to. But but just read read this verse with me. It says, And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, 
and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's what I want you to see. I said earlier that it is a profound certainty, this hope that we have. We are invincible. Nothing can get in the way of that. Look at, look at these words right here. Look what it says. He's making that exact point. Paul says, he predestined us, he called us, and he justified us. What tense are all those in? The past, right? It's already happened. He did those things. And that makes sense, right? Like predestined us from the foundations of the world. He called us. If you're a Christian, you remember when that happened. He justified us. If you're a Christian, that has already occurred. But notice this. Do you see it? Underlined it there for us. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Look at that. The past tense. That's something that's to come. That's something like, that's our hope, right? That we will be glorified. But the way Paul writes it here is, he already did it. He already secured it. There's nothing that can stand in the way. Think of your doomsday scenario, right? Like, what is the doomsday scenario for your life? What's the worst thing that can possibly happen? It can't do anything. You are already glorified. Jonathan Edwards once preached a sermon where he shared three things that a Christian can be certain of. Here's the three things. Your bad things will work out for good. Your good things can never be taken away. And your best things are yet to come. If you are in Jesus, those things are true of you. And let me just close with this. If you're not in Jesus, okay? I said earlier, God isn't working for your good. He's not working for your good. He's working because one day you'll be eternally separated from him. But let me say this. Is it possible that as you look back over your life, everything has been leading actually to this moment? He is working for your good. It's been leading to this moment where you've been seeing more and more your need for Jesus, your need for a Savior, the fact that you can't do it alone, the fact that, that you've been trying to be your own king and it hasn't worked out very well. So that can change today, right? God is working for our good. Anyone could get in on that. Anyone can get in on that. Let me pray, and then we are just going to sing one of my favorite songs, since so I think it's, it's, a, it's a powerful song about this hope that we're looking forward to, about this hope that we have um, to carry us on no matter what happens, this invincibility that we have. And so I just encourage you just to sing it out with all your might. And if you don't believe it, <laughs> sing it <laughs> as loud as you can and pray that God will help you to believe it. Let me just pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that this is true of us, even if we don't feel it all the time. Even in living in this sinful world where it feels like it's just hard. It's just hard. There's so much going on. There's so much that tries to pull us away from you. There's so much that makes us want to doubt you. There's so much that wants us, makes us not feel like our hope is as certain as you say it is, but I just pray that we will live in this, that you will make us like Paul, where we are a people who can't be messed with, right? No matter what you do, it's not going to work because we live in the freedom of this hope that we have.
because Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, died the death that we deserve, rose again and defeated death, and we are citizens of him. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.